Thought Bubble Audio. Hi, and welcome to Academy Rewind, the fortnightly podcast where we take a look at the Oscars from years past. I'm Tim, and with me, as always, is my man who might actually be possessed by Pazuzu. Palmer, how are you today? Uh, I am not good. You're not good. No. I didn't go to eight years of medical school to not be addressed properly. I'm sorry, Dr. Pazuzu. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> she still has a slight touch of Pazuzu. <laughs> uh, that's a good. Is that a Simpsons episode? That's a Simpsons. Yeah, episode, that's right? uh, last year's. Not this past year's, but I think the year before Treehouse of Horrors. No, two years ago because it was you were still at your old place. Oh, okay. See, that's how you, that's how you determine time now. That, yeah. Whether what house <laughs> I was living in. Yeah. At one point, that's good. Uh, well, I'm glad that you um, are doing sort of good, that you have a touch of the Pazuzu. Um, I'm doing well. We're here to talk about the 1974 Best Picture Oscar nominees. They are as follows. The Exorcist, The Sting, American Graffiti, A Touch of Class, and Cries and Whispers. Palmer, what won Best Picture? I'm pretty sure it was The Sting. The Sting is correct. It did win Yay! Best Picture. Yay! So let's do that one last, as we always do, and let's start with The Exorcist, directed by William Friedkin, written by William Peter Blatley, novel and screenplay, starring Ellen Burstyn, Max von Sydow, Linda Blair, and Jason Miller. This movie was nominated for Best Picture, Best Actress for Bernstein, Supporting Actor for Miller, Supporting Actress for Blair, uh, Director, Cinematography, Production Design, and Editing. It won Best Adapted Screenplay and Sound. Story no. revol- yeah. The story revolves around a 12-year-old girl who is possessed by a mysterious entity and her mother who seeks the help of two priests to save her. And a drunken director who randomly calls people Nazis. He sure does. William Freakin. Um, uh, oh, it was played by William Freakin? No, it wasn't played by William. Uh-huh. <laughs> that would be great. Um, I thought you were like making a slander against William Friedkin. No, I was, like, I was making a slander against the director in the movie when he's talking to like the butler. And he's like, do you ever go bowling with Goebbels? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good stuff. Palmer, I assume you had seen The Exorcist before watching this. I have. Okay, I had not. Fun fact: This was really? the fir- this. I know this is a first time viewing for me. Okay. I'd seen all of the all of the parts. This I've so, yeah. so basically I've seen the second half of the movie um, out of order. Um, but the whole the yeah. whole segment of like digging in the desert. And, and all fi- the stuff that doesn't actually connect to the movie whatsoever. Yeah, like her as yeah. an actress, the mom as an actress, yeah. and then um, the even the medical tests. Like you know, like I didn't know that was part of the movie. I like yeah. in my mind, the mom jumped immediately to <laughs> I need an <laughs> possessed by a team. <laughs> yeah, I was really surprised that they went through the science of it, and then the doctors were like. Have you heard of exorcisms? Because we're out of ideas. Um, I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed all of that. Okay. Um. So yeah. So I'd seen it. I I had actually avoided watching it because it is considered one of the scariest movies of all time. 
Mm-hmm. And so, and I... By uh, people who've never seen another scary movie. Well, so the, here's what's interesting about that. I was, a couple of years ago, I read an article by a film critic who heard the same thing. You know, scariest movie of all time, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, I'm going to watch it because I would like to know. And he watched it and he said, it's not scary. Like, it's creepy. Yeah, that like, was my but, article. Yeah, well, you know, well, no, it wasn't. Here's the follow-up. Um, he says, it... Like it's it's certainly creepy. It is not maybe what is scary by like today's definition of what is scary in film and stuff like that. But then he went back and watched it several years later after he had children and after watching it at being a parent, he was mm-hmm. like, oh, this is one of the scariest movies I've ever seen. Okay. Because the horror rests not within like what you're witnessing as an audience member, but if you place but if as a parent, if you view that as this is my child and what is happening to my child and that like unknown quantity, that's what is scary about it. I don't think that's what makes it the scariest movie of all time because there were lots of people who got scared by it in the 70s who were not parents. But but I think that it has lasting quality because of that. The fault lies not in our stars, Horatio. Yes, of course. Yeah. Um, thanks, Ham- thanks, thanks, Hamlet. You're welcome. So I saw this movie one other time, and that was when it had gotten re-released in the theaters um, as part of like their director's slash version you've never seen before cut. Sure. Because it's there's three different cuts listed. There's the there's the regular movie, there's the version you've never seen, and then there's the director's cut. Now the director's cut and the version you've never seen before have the same runtime, which is weird, but for some reason they're all listed separately. So when they re-release it into the theaters, uh, me and our friend Josh mm-hmm. went to go see it because I had never seen it before. I don't remember if Josh had, but it was like, you know, this is, we, we both love horror movies. You know, this is a historical horror movie and we have a chance to go see it in the theaters. Let's go. And I... I didn't find it scary then. I don't find it scary now. Even in the terms of today's sensibility, I don't necessarily buy that argument because this is the same decade that gave us The Shining. Mm, no, Shining was 1980. This is essentially the same decade that gave us go. The Shining. <laughs> like The Shining was physically 1980 or 1980s. Uh, it was 1980 AD. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Um, so, so like this is a like so the Shining is like one year out of nineteen the nineteen seventy. It was being filmed in the seventies, right? Certainly. So it's essentially the seventies movie, and um, I just, like I don't find it scary at all, and I I get the whole thing of like. Well, if you're a parent, you would find it scarier because what if your child went through that? Look, I've seen enough horror movies with demonic children, mm. and I already know all children are demonic because of them. <laughs> like this, like as far as creepiest children go, this doesn't even rank in my top ten. The first eight slots alone are just the girl from Ring. That's true. Although there is something incredibly disturbing about her going, what a wonderful day for an exorcism. I don't know why that particular moment creeps me out, but I even watched it. Like, I, like, looped it back several yeah. times. And I was like, no, that's just a I, – the, the 
line reading is excellent yeah. from like a, Candace, a lot of Candace McKenna. Who, what's her? What's the person who voiced Pazuzu? Um, I be, it's in my fun fact. So oh, okay. uh, when I get to it, we'll uh, I'll I'll tell you the name because I don't have it right in front of me. Okay. Um, so I remember when I saw this in the theaters, like all the stuff with Regan being mm-hmm. possessed, like her tirade of of dialogue i just found hilarious um and it wasn't like the and it wasn't like the typical like you laugh because you don't know what else to do sure but it was just funny like i don't like i still don't get why this is considered to be such a great horror movie it's not a bad movie i think it's it's very of its 70s um i find it very slow yeah it and found, plotting it is it is a little slow but i don't i we've talked about this before maybe maybe off mic i can't remember i like slow horror movies um, so do i the, even, and you know, the, the shining is slow yeah the they, babadook is slow i like that kind uh, of movie. babadook i still haven't been able to get into but there there's definitely been a resurgence of the very slow burn horror movie mm-hmm. Look at James Wan stuff. You look at the yeah. Insidious and the um, uh, the uh, the ones with Patrick. The other ones with Patrick Wilson. Conjuring, Conjuring universes. Like you mm-hmm. take those two universes alone, and there's a bunch of slow burning horror. There's ways to make it work, but I feel like this just the first half of this movie is like five different things that they throw on screen to maybe give you the reasoning behind her possession yep like oh they found this thing digging in cairo oh she found a ouija board but then cairo i thought they were in i, I just naturally were, i thought they were in iraq i think they're in iraq i naturally assume Iran. every um every historical dig site's in cairo it's not it's not i'm pretty sure they're in iraq <laughs> i'm pretty sure they're in iraq but Actually, I I thought they were in, um, like, Jerusalem or Israel, just I will, because of the I will look, nature I will, of the rest of the movie. I will look it up. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's... So, I think the acting's good. I think Max von Sydow is really good. Um, although, like, at the beginning when he finds the relic, you get... They're you, in Ira- the ancient city of Hatra in Iraq. Okay. Um, at the beginning, you're kind of led to believe like his declining health is due to finding that that uh, little statue. But he didn't look good before that. Like I don't know how this guy is on an archaeological dig. Well, the dig is supposed to be in the 1950s, and so it's 20 years later. Right, because that's where. I mean, but he already looked bad, like at the dig site. Like oh, walking sure, from where yeah. he was to there. Sure. Like, Actually, that first scene of him like getting up and taking yeah. the corner, I was like, "Ooh, are you gonna make it?" Yep. <laughs> like that was my first <laughs> reaction. Maybe I'm just used to Max von Sydow like being old, but I mean, yeah. he looked. I mean, he's like Richard Harris, right? He looked old years before he was actually old. So by exactly. the time he got to that age, he looked the same still. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it, the the dig takes place 20 years previous because. That beginning part is where the movie um, Dominion and the Exorcist prequel take place. Right. Like, I believe it even starts at the same dig site. Um, yes, because I have seen – it's weird. Right. I have seen that movie, but I've not seen 
this movie. I had not. Isn't that strange? The chicken or the egg. Yeah. Well, I saw Dominion in the theater. I don't know why exactly, but it, you know, usually prequels like you can walk into and not have to see what came before it sometimes. Um, exactly. Um, I think, I think you're right in a lot of places with the exorcist. I do think that it's one of the, it's a film that deserves its credit for changing the genre, right? It's one of those films like horror movies before the exorcist where it's like you have psycho, which changed the horror movie. And then you have the exorcist, which changed it again, right? Those are, that's like the next, that's the next equivalency upward. So I think like a lot of what we see in this film is blase now because it's been done so often, mm-hmm. but Exorcist is one of those first of its kind movies. Um, yeah, I'll have to. Uh, I'll have to do some looking into horror movies pre Exorcist and get back to you. Yeah, because before this, you're looking at like Hammer films, and you know, like, Hammer time, and you know, like I thought Hammer was like mid seventies, mid seven. I thought Hammer was sixty seven. But e- either way, yeah, like even some Hammer films, like there's like a, a good chunk of blood and gore and whatever else. So like your, but The Exorcist is like raunchy in comparison, right? Some of the mm-hmm. stuff that that Regan does as um, by influence of Pazuzu. So, um. But I, I I did it. I enjoyed this film quite a bit. It's probably one that I would even watch again, even like if I was like so struck, maybe because it, mm-hmm. I didn't find it overly scary. So like honestly, I think I still find Jaws scarier than I found The Exorcist. If that like like is a good equiv like a good equivalent, like yeah. that movie still makes me jump in places. Ooh. Yeah. What to any um, to all the film executives that listen to the podcast. Give me a call. Possessed shark. Isn't that just one of the shark names? Shut up, you. Yeah. Or deep blue sea, or something no? That's like that. scientific. That's science. That's scientifically. Oh, that's right. They shark. made their brains larger. Yes, that's right. right. How how I want a possessed shark, Pazuzu inhabited shark. Okay, excellent. I'm on board. <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch it. Why not? Get me Max von Sydow. Oh goodness, um, he's dead now, so you can't. Um, okay. Um, well, he's dead in the movie too, so it's fine. He died. He died in March of this year. Yeah, he did. Yeah, damn it. He 20, was like twenty twenty. Just taking more. Screw this. Just taking more people. He I mean, he was he was ninety, so I yeah, mean, he didn't yeah. want to quarantine. Is what it was. That's right. I'm looking at a picture of him from 2016, and he looks, and he looks the, same the same as he did yep. from 1973. Mm-hmm. It's it's pretty amazing. I mean, maybe makeup and stuff, but still pretty amazing. To be fair, I had, like I had joked prior to his death, like in January of this year, because I think we were watching either another thing with Max von Sydow or something, and I was like, has anyone ever seen Max von Sydow and um, the guy from the guy from uh, Sound of Music in the same place? Oh, Christopher Plummer? No, yep. they do look a lot alike, though. Yeah. But Christopher Plummer has won that war, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, anyway, g- give me Max some... Max Monsanto's final words were... Um... Thank God Christopher Plummer is still alive. Yep. It's just it's like, like Jefferson it's like and Adams. Jo- yep. <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, that's great. <laughs> All right. The scene where Regan projectile vomits as Father Karras only required one take. The vomit was intended to hit Jason Miller in the chest, 
but the plastic tubing misfired, hitting him in the face. His reaction of shock and disgust while wiping away the vomit is genuine, and Miller admitted in an interview that he was angered by the mistake. Huh. Well, there you, well, there you go. It's great, though. Great pea soup scene, as I... <laughs> it's so once you know it's pea soup, it's really hard not to look at it as that. Like you can see right. like, the viscosity of it is just pea soup. But yeah, that's okay. Uh, on the first day of filming the exorcism sequence, Linda Blair's delivery of her foul mouth dialogue so disturbed the gentlemanly Max von Sydow that he actually forgot his lines. Oh, that's on really the first good. day of filming the exorcism sequence, Linda Blair delivered. That's really cute. I, now, does your give me your next fun fact, because then I have a question. Yeah. Linda Blair received her Best Supporting Actress Oscar nomination before it was widely known that previous Supporting Actress winner Mercedes McCambridge had provided the voice of the demon. By Academy rules, once Blair was given the nomination, it could not be withdrawn. But the controversy about Blair being given credit for another actress's work ruined the chances of winning the award. Okay, that actually kind of answers that kind of answers my question because, like, obviously that wasn't Linda Blair's voice, and like I assume they wanted to protect the child from doing some pretty vulgar and saying some pretty terrible things. So did I, did she say so. the, did she say those lines? Or I did believe she, like, she did. Like I believe on set she does, and they only change her voice to give her more of a demonic voice. Wow. Okay. Because I mean, if it's just her regular voice, it lends credence to the theory that she's not actually possessed. Right. Right. Yeah. No. Which is true. I mean, and her voice is probably the creepiest part of the right. Her voice it is definitely the creepiest is. part of the whole that thing. and the spider walk, which wasn't initially in the movie. Oh. Okay. The spider That's... walk was like the main sequence of of um the virgin the version you've never seen before. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Well, All there you right. go. It. All right. Let's move on to American Graffiti, directed by George Lucas, written by George Lucas, Gloria Catston, William Huck, starring Richard Dreyfus, Ron Howard, Paul Lamatt, Charles Martin Smith, Cindy Williams, Candy Clark, and a brief appearance by a 29 turning 30 Harrison Ford. Um, this movie was nominated you for Best Picture. You are 29 going on 30, <laughs> Harrison Ford. What are you doing? <laughs> um, they Is Harrison Ford one of your fun facts in here? Do you have a Harrison Ford? I mean, Harrison fact? Ford is always a fun fact, but no. Um, one of um, uh, one of, he was offered like $450 a week or something like that to be in this movie, I mean, in 1973. Good <laughs> and he was like, that's too much, that's too little money. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah, that was, that was too little money, here's, fi- here's $500, and you're like, okay, because he was making money as a carpenter, he's like, I need to feed my child. So anyway, this movie was nominated for Best Picture, supporting uh, actress for Candy Clark, director, adapted screenplay, and editing. This movie won zero awards. It's the only... It's the only movie of these five movies that didn't win any of the uh, didn't win any awards, um, which is kind of a bummer. Um, mm, if you say so, well, it's kind of a bummer in the way that uh, just like uh, poor, um, poor um, George Mackenzie Phillips, poor Mackenzie Phillips. I was just going to say poor George Lucas, like never. Uh, oh. You know, never. Always a bridesmaid, never a bride. Basically, basically. 
I mean, his movies win special effects awards. They sure do. This one didn't, but others do. Um, anyway, this movie is about a couple of high school grads uh, who spend one final night cruising the strip in Modesto, California with their buddies before they go off to college. Um, it is um, American Graffiti invented the I'm going to hang out as a teenager movie. Um, it is one. It's like kind of the first of it. It's kind of the like the exorcist. It's kind of the first of its kind, um, which is pretty cool. Palmer didn't like this movie. I can tell. No, 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 because it was about nothing. Right. Right. Yeah. That's the same reason you don't like Seinfeld. (laughs) I love Seinfeld. Actually, (laughs) uh, this movie is, is very nostalgic. Mm hmm. And even for a time that you weren't alive for, it's nostalgic. Even I mean, no, but I mean, this is this is essentially George Lucas's version of being overly nostalgic to his. That is correct. This is growing this up. Is literally what George Lucas did when he was their age, where he right. like, drove around in nice cars and they like got burgers in and circles, hung out into, doing right, nothing, and they just like got burgers at one o'clock in the morning and hung out and drag raced and like that was yeah. That was it. It's funny because, like, it's you said, like, I joke that it's nostalgic for a time that you didn't grow up in, but, like, watching this movie, like, I was nostalgic. Like, it creates an actual sense of nostalgia for something that you weren't a part of, which I think is pretty, which is pretty cool. Um, See, I think, I think the best thing that this movie does is, like, the production department is on point. The cars, the look, the feel, the, the music, all great. The biggest thing that that ruins this movie is the lack of script. Well, it's George Lucas, George Lucas movie. What do you want? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Star Wars. Baby. Uh, that's great. This is what he did, but right before this was this movie right yeah. before Star Wars. Um, I do agree that this movie is really about. I mean, it's not really about nothing. It's like it's about Richard Dreyfus, who is like his like search for love before he goes off to college, and and Ron the next day, the next day, right? And then like and then Ron Howard like breaking out of his childhood acting mold and being a jerk. Um, yeah, and then you know, and Paul Lamat, Paul Lamat is the one drag racing, or Charles Martin Smith is I can't remember, but like it's basically all about them like growing up over the course of a mm-hmm. night and like being a little bit better or different than they were the night before. And so the movie really is about something, but it doesn't take tons to kind of get them there because it's over the course right. of one night. Um, yeah. This is the second time I've seen this is the second time I've seen this movie. It's much better on its second viewing because I felt like you did the first time I saw it. I watched it and I was like, what did I watch? Like, yeah, yeah, I loved the music. The cars were great. Um, I want to go get a burger now, you know, like and then like, okay, cool. I'm just going to go to Sonic. Right. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much the only place around here that you can like get drive through like that. But yeah, but or drive in. (sighs) But um, I I liked it the second time because I was able to like see what he was doing to coalesce the pieces together. I don't think it's his strongest work. But I no, like obviously definitely not. Like, That's Howard the Duck. We all know this. Yeah, of course. Um but but I do think I do think it's pretty great and it does create an entire genre in, unto itself. One that arguably doesn't have tons of legs to it, not in the way that Star mm. Wars does or anything like that. But the hanging out with your friends doing nothing genre, like that like clerks, um 
um, trying to think of like uh, not Bill and Ted, but well, maybe Bill and Ted, you know, like that kind of like or um, not a Wayne's World, like those types of mm-hmm. Ferris Bueller, those type of movies where there's like nothing happening, but like everything happens. That's American Graffiti is kind of the first of its kind. And yeah. for that, right. it, for that, it deserves credit. But like The Exorcist, I've now seen it done better. Right. I just there's no reason I can think of where I would ever want to go back and rewatch this movie. Well, I watched it on my own first, and then I had right. to rewatch it for yeah. for this. But I tell you, I enjoyed it way more the second time around. Yeah. I don't know. the The music's great. the The production's great. You know, if you want the best parts of this movie without having to sit there and watch the three hours worth of nothingness, just watch still clips of the of the movie, mm-hmm. like still production shots, and listen to Wolfman Jack. And that's who was essentially himse- the best parts of this movie. himself in this movie, which is yes. pretty, which yep. was pretty fun. Although it was funny because I remember I've seen Wolfman Jack before. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a little bit older than you, so I'm old enough to remember like when they would still play his um his show on like B one oh one because my father would always listen to it. And I had seen him on like uh I think Married with Children and and maybe Happy Days before this. And I didn't realize he was actually black. Like it wasn't until this movie that I found out he was black. Oh. Like, cause, I mean you see him, he's He's relatively light skinned. Like, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Like, unless you knew, I don't know if you would actually, like, if your mind would jump there. Probably wouldn't. You'd, he's but, tan. Like, yeah, yeah, but apparently, like, this was a controversial thing in the in the time frame of this movie because Mackenzie Phillip makes a comment that, like, her dad or her parents right. don't like mm-hmm. Wolfman Jack and don't want her listening to it because he's a, cause he's a yep. Negro. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, the whole reason that Lucas put him in the movie is because it's that nostalgic factor, too. Like, Lucas did listen to He's the Jack. Like, yeah, yeah, no. Like, he had, the, he had like, the number one rated show. It would be like, you know what it is? It's essentially like doing um, Hairspray and not having an American bandstand-style show. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's right. You're like you know, missing like the, you're missing. Part you're of the doing culture. yeah. You're doing the fifties. You're doing cruising car culture. So most of the most of the soundtrack is through the radio. You need Wolfman Jack. I think all of the music is through the radio, actually. Right, the, but I'm or, just or saying, the, like, or the, like that's, or the dance. that's the conveyance yeah. of the soundtrack. That's right. So you that's need Wolfman Jack. That's right. Like that's that was easily the best decision Lucas did in this movie. Oh, I don't know about that. I do in I do really like his choice of cars in this in this film i uh i i approve very strongly mm. yeah it was great i like i said i i wouldn't recommend this movie to everybody i personally like it because i like this kind of movie and i love mm-hmm. i love the era um i love the music you know so but but you're right in that the narrative is not very strong it's just not cut that and clip it yeah, <laughs> Tim says I'm right. That's right. I have a just like I have everybody a, I have does a cut eventually of you saying that you love all Star Wars from a couple episodes ago. So I'm just waiting no. to unveil that. <laughs> no. One of the main reasons why so many studios initially turned down the script was because George Lucas wanted at least 40 songs on the soundtrack, 
which would obviously lead to a large bill over the rights to use these songs. Universal finally agreed to fund the picture when Lucas' friend, Francis Ford Coppola, fresh from success for The Godfather, came on board as producer. Isn't it crazy to think of how young Francis Ford Coppola was when he made The Godfather, if you like put it in that perspective? Uh, like Max von Sydow, he's looked the same. That is probably true. Indeed. He's always had that giant beard where he looks like a fit, like a retired gangster in Sicily. That's right. That's right. <laughs> at, his, at his vineyard. That's right. Which he actually has. Oh, my heart. What? I'm just uh, thinking <laughs> of um, The Godfather. Um, he dies of a heart attack at his vineyard. There is a rumor that while George Lucas and a co-worker were editing the film, the co-worker asked Lucas for Real 2 Dialogue 2, which abbreviated to R2-D2. A name which surfaced in Lucas's later film, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. Bam. Although then yeah. just called Star Wars. Well, it was on the scroll. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Please continue. After CinemaScope proved to be too expensive, George Lucas decided that the film should have a documentary-like feel and shot the film using technoscope cameras. He believed that technoscope, an inexpensive way of shooting 35mm film and utilizing only half the film's frame, would be a perfect widescreen format resembling 16mm. It did kind of, actually, that worked. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. Well, I mean, to be fair, this is the same guy who thought going all digital for the prequels, you know, wouldn't turn out to be a bad idea in hindsight, and I love the prequels, but it does look dated because yeah, of it. Yeah, digital was a bad move. Although, although Phantom Menace has more practical effects than any Star Wars film. So, like, like uh, all 11 of them, the, like, Phantom Menace has the most practical effects. So it's not all, not all bad. Not even, even in the digital space. So anyway, uh, A Touch of Class, directed by Melvin Frank, written by Melvin Frank, Jack Rose, based on the short story, She Loves Me, She Told Me So Last Night, by Melvin Frank, starring George Segal and Glenda Jackson, nominated for Best Picture, Adapted Screenplay, Original Song, All That Love Went to Waste, and Original Score. Indeed, uh, the movie won Best Actress for Jackson. Uh, story is about a, is a romantic comedy about a pair of clandestine lovers in a London Spain tryst. That is the very short version of of what happened. London is not in Spain. London hyphen Spain, like it okay. takes place in both places. Well, it sounded like you were saying like Boston, Massachusetts, oh, no. London, Spain, as in London, England, and they go to undetermined place in Spain. Well, somewhere that you can see That's Gibraltar. Right. So, southern Spain. And it's not undetermined. They actually say the name of it. It's Marler. Oh, very good. Your Spanish is yep. excellent, by the way. Yeah. I thought so. Um, I'd never seen this movie before, and I really loved it. It was great. I don't think anybody has My ever seen My mom this did. Movie I asked her. <laughs> I said, I, see, I saw this movie. It's something that you definitely would have seen when, you, when it came out. And, and she was like, oh, yeah, I saw that. Probably so. Um, I really enjoyed it. I was there first day, yeah, that's right. opening day. Everyone went to go see American Graffiti, but my mom was there watching A Touch of Class. Um, <laughs> actually, my mom would have been there to see The Exorcist if she had to watch any of these movies. Like first, it was definitely <laughs> The Exorcist. But um, uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was. I thought it was witty. The story was good. I don't necessarily approve of the um, and the. Yeah, the see, 
it's tough because George Segal's character is cheating on his wife with Glenda Jackson, who's divorced, right? Um, who magically just stops having children at some point in the movie where she's just like, yeah, they're fine. Like, doesn't matter. Um, and the the thing about it is that there's really, like, George Segal is just cheating on his wife who is, by all accounts, lovely. Like, there's really nothing, like, she's not a terrible monster. There's, like, no, like, he's just actually really selfish and a bad husband and father. And you're supposed to be on his side, like, because he's the star, I guess, but... And because he's witty and charming and all these things, but you can kind of see, like, it ends on this melancholy note of them of him and Glenda Jackson not being together because, like, he they get so worn out of this tryst that they're involved in. But all he's doing is really just hurting his family and his wife and himself by being involved. But the movie plays itself as a romantic comedy basically up until that moment. Palmer, what did you think of A Touch of Class? Loved it. Great. Watch the movie. Absolutely watch the movie. It is hilarious. George Siegel's great. Uh, who was the uh, lead actress who said? Glenda Jackson. Glenda Jackson's great. The bellhop in Spain is great. The The music is really good. This is a delightfully funny movie that reminds me of the movie that we watched last year with... Uh, the one movie with Claudette Colbert year. and um, oh, it, it happened one night. It happened one night. This is a better version of it happened one night. Yes, I would agree with that because I I thought this was much funnier yeah. than it happened one night. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I'd watch this again. It definitely left me uh, left me on a sour note. It's one of those like, aha, we tricked you, audience. That's why we're nominated for best picture. Um, you know, it's one of those like, uh, it is actually kind of like a real life the whole time. That's kind of the movie that well, yeah. it, Where did you it think turned it out to be. During? Say again? Where did you think it took place? In the in Matrix? The, in the Matrix, yes. Well, it would be in the Matrix inside the Matrix, wouldn't it be? Because we're in the Matrix. Probably. I don't right. know. Hard, I don't know. That's hard too to meta say. for me. Yeah. Hard to say. Um did I you... will say the the biggest issue I have with the movie is it wears out its welcome. Uh, like the yeah. last <laughs> the last quarter of the movie, maybe the last half hour, like when they get back from Spain, mm-hmm. and it's just them carrying on the tryst, which is fine, but it doesn't really do anything until the end, where they're like, you know what, we're done. Yeah. Um, do you think that the movie, like? I said I don't know if you heard any of this because of your microphone, but like, is are we supposed to be on George yes. Siegel's side, even yep. though he's cheating on his you're, wife? You're on that, the side of this couple. But what would you say is what makes him cheating on his wife okay for you to be on his side? Uh, I don't believe he's actually in love with his wife. It's just a time frame where people didn't get divorced. Um, except that Glenda Jackson is divorced. See. Her husband, she references him as husband, not ex-husband. They just do not live together. He lives in another country. That's right. Okay. So just because they are not 
together doesn't mean that they're divorced. At no point do they mention that she is divorced. So you're saying that because he doesn't – George Scott doesn't love his wife. And obviously she him, doesn't love her husband. No, but and he doesn't love her then. So, But that grants him permission to – break up the family to cheat on her would to... i would i have preferred it if they were divorced yes but this is the time frame that we're in like this movie takes place in a time frame where that's not happening okay so but what about what about our like it hold it's got to hold up to modern storytelling so you know just from a storytelling perspective. i mean modern storytelling they would have been they probably would have been divorced or he would have gotten divorced in the process of the movie sure he would have been going through one or recently had been but or but, this but those are all a divorce. those are all maybe those are all ifs and whatever else but he like like I, i'm saying this as a person who enjoyed the movie don't 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 mis- right. don't mistake me but like she his wife doesn't do anything wrong she's not mean to the children she's not terrible to him she's not absentee in fact she's like actually like on board and with it and like loves her family and her parents come over and he just is like he is checked out of that family he is checked out of that family and and that that we're supposed to say that like oh that's okay yeah yeah, which I would say, like, I would object. I think most people would object to, oh, it's it's fine because he doesn't love her. Like, that right. doesn't really, that doesn't really run I home. mean, this is, yeah, this is more, I, this is more of a, I don't want to say morality question. Mm-hmm. I want to say this is more of the stock that you put into the sacrament of marriage question. Sure. Because sure. let's say let let's just say that we take out the religious implication of marriage. Sure. And it's just a legal thing. Right. Does it make what he does okay then in your mm. eyes? No, because legally they've like signed this paper that says like we're in all of our financial decisions together. We're in all of our big life decisions together. We do all of this mm-hmm. together as one person. That's the point of even right. the legal documentation. Yeah. Um. And so like for him to split his time then off with somebody else, he's actually foregoing those. He's foregoing those decisions, even just being in a. I mean, we don't respecting relationship where he's we don't necessarily flat out know he's putting off those her. decisions. We just mm. don't see them happening. But she make like his wife makes mention of those things that like you know like you know like I wait around for you to do this this and this. Or Glenda Jackson makes a like point where he's like not really in it on any side mm-hmm. because he's stretched too thin, which means that he's not really being a good father. He's not being a good husband. He's not being even a good um, you know adulterer you know because he's like not fully in it in every in every way so right i would say that even if you even without the religious part of it i'd still say that yeah he's not exactly filling his fulfilling his end of the bargain but yeah. that's also part of what the movie is trying to point the movie's trying to make right because his friend the director 
like says like Paul yeah Trudino. I, yeah right he's like you know I had one of the, like I had one of these and like he talks about his experience and what that means and he like had to make a choice between going this way or this way mm-hmm. and you know there's or a going joke. my way yeah uh, see what I did good, there good song um there's a uh, a joke in friends where uh I think it's Chandler to I think it's Chandler to Joe where he says hey no man like you're the kind of guy that one day the right woman is going to come along and you're going to have to say have the strength to say no thanks I'm married you know <laughs> like <laughs> and that's kind of what this movie is like, kind of what this movie is getting at that yeah. you know he doesn't have the strength to do that in fact he like searches out reasons to not have that question answered but i'm saying i think that's one of the reasons this movie gets nominated because it raises questions like that it's not just a simple romantic comedy it has like it has a bigger it has bigger questions attached to it and that's one of the reasons that i really liked it see i didn't think of any of that I know because it was about love, and you're blinded by movie love, and not by because right, that's the, real love. The questions and causalities of real life. Now, nah. um, now, nah, give me some fun facts on Touch of Class. Okay. D-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-d-
and possible incest. There's a lot going on in this movie that yeah, there sure is. Um, <sighs> yeah, and see the thing, the thing. No, no, no. The thing about the glass is like, see, their 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 um, connection between each other is real fragile, like glass. But you know, no, they can, like, no, see shut up. Into <laughs> shut up. <laughs> I don't know. I'm making that up. I don't know. Um, this is the kind of movie that if the I sat and thought about it, and if, if, I thought, if I thought about it and watched it and I didn't have to watch these movies in a real conjunction time, I bet I could tell you something about this movie to give it some insight. Yeah, However, I just I watched it to like watch it. it. And no, I didn't think you would like it either way. <laughs> but like um, it, it's it's something that you have. It's a film you have to devote your time and your mind to, and it's a movie that is going to say a lot without saying anything. You have to do the legwork and the reading uh, into it, and whether you even care to do that. Um, and that's See, uh, that's that's uh, that's Ingmar Bergman's style. That's really what all of his films are about. They're they're like postmod they're postmodern existential questioning films and you either are into it or you're not into it and i was not into i like that stuff and i was not into this film at all the way to be loved on film twitter and in film like in critic circles in general is to mo- to make the most vague movie you could ever make and just let critics think that they're smart by reading so much into it and they'll instantly acclaim you a genius. Um, it's not exactly far off. Um, I think that if there's so, – I mean this movie actually would say like let's say let's proves that. But I think there are movies that are so vague that – or stories that are so vague that you – like it goes nowhere. You think you need a bit more of a bridge mm-hmm. to connect there. But this like movie – Like a bridge I, over troubled waters. Indeed. So like – Let's say The Exorcist. The Exorcist is popcorn fun that gets nominated for Best Picture, right? Popcorn it's not, fun. It's. I mean, you know what I mean, though. It's not like it's 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 a movie designed to entertain you, to scare you, right? Mm-hmm. A Touch of Class or American Graffiti, The Sting. These are movies that are all designed to first entertain you. Yeah, I think those are your then, better options. I then, think The Exorcist does stuff. Yeah, I mean, they all do. It's like American Graffiti is designed to entertain you, right? To make you nostalgic. It's not George Lucas isn't making any grand, uh, you know, grand statements about the nature of classism or, you know, like, you know, anything like that. Um, I'm sure there's a dissertation out there about it, though. I'm sure there is. But I mean, but and you because you can do that with anything. I mean, people read into King Kong for years. They're like, it's about colonialism. And they were like, no, it's about a big gorilla. It's about a, on a giant gorilla. Yeah. Yeah. And people are like, but no, it's actually about colonialism. And they're like, but it's not. And you're like, but there comes a point in which like. It's really about what the audience wants to dive into that. Like, people have been diving into Star Wars for years about it being different stuff. And George Lucas has been like, it's a movie about space. Like, it's actually, like, designed for kids for you not to read into it. But people have taken it beyond that themselves. And there's nothing wrong with that. Looking at you, Tim. Yeah, right. So, what I'm saying, like, there's nothing wrong wrong with that. If If you get enjoyment out of that, go for it. That's a great. That's a great thing. I get huge enjoyment out of that. That's. It's a great way to stretch your brain. It simulates conversation. It's good for writing. It's all this stuff. If you are into the academic, if you're into an academic field like that, but a movie like Cries and Whispers only exists for things like that. It does not exist to entertain you. Hmm. Um, 
And I think that's where you're getting – I think that's where you get hung up on it. Um, or movies like this. Phantom Thread is a great example of a movie like this. There will be no, blood. Phantom basically, Thread is not a great example of anything. Basically any uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movie, you know, like they're not he, they're not really designed to entertain you. They're designed to make you think, to critique, to analyze. Um, but if you don't like doing that, if that's not your ent- version of entertainment, then you'll back away from it. Um, but I don't think Cries and Whispers uh, – I don't think Cries and Whispers is a, a great example – of a movie that can be both entertaining and a movie that you can analyze. Nah, this is very true. Yeah, because I, because that's right. Like you watch it, you like to sit in a movie and you watch it and you're done. And you're like, that was good. I enjoyed that. Maybe I'll watch it again someday. I don't really, you know, you don't need to break it down too specifically. I like to do that, and I wouldn't want to do this with Cries and Whispers. It just mm-hmm. wasn't for me. Hmm. Um, but I did like lot of people like this movie i was like i was scouring i'm like how oh, is this movie rated and it's because it's Igman it. bergman but it's potentially potentially um just you know a very famous very revered director yeah. um so but yeah i don't know yeah, yeah like what, three of the fun facts were like this is included in this list and that list and i'm like i refuse to ever read those for this movie yeah so but to each to each his own, but uh, give me some if you have any fun facts about Cries and Whispers. Bergman, who produced the film with his own money, could not find an American distributor. I wonder why, as they felt it was too uncommercial. <laughs> See, yeah, yeah. Told you. Roger Roger Corman. That should tell you everything you need to know about this movie. Roger Corman, who had just left American International Pictures to set up his own New World releasing company, was in the market for a prestige picture to give his new operation some class. Huh. He should have went with touch of class. Yeah. Oh, got him. Really? That's so interesting that Roger Corman, that's the reason this movie. But you know what? But then it gets nominated. Yeah, because actually this movie is originally 1972. Oh, I see. Okay, so well, let's do our let's do our famous game now. Um, let's what movies came out in 1973 that also could have been nominated? Literally anything. Soylent Green, The there Wicker you go. Man, Enter the Dragon. What was, that? what was after Soylent Green? Wicker Man. Oh, look, I mm. Enter the Dragon, yeah. um, The Holy Mountain, Fantastic Planet, Westworld, nope. Disney's Robin Hood, nope. Serpico. <laughs> uh, mean Streets, Walking Tall, The Long Goodbye, The Way We Were, Ooh. Um, Live and Let Die, The Ugh. Jackal, yeah. Jesus Christ Superstar. Nailed it. Should have yeah. gotten nominated. Gotcha. I, I knew I'd find one. I knew I'd find one. Ingmar Bergman's Scenes from a Marriage. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> um, Godzilla versus Megadalon. There you go. Uh, Charlotte's Web. Okay. A Charlie Brown Thanksgiving. Yep. Um, I'm running out of movies. There's four movies right there that should a have Doll's been. A Doll's House. Don't be afraid of the dark. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm basically I'm basically out now. Yeah. Scream. Blackula Scream. Nailed it. That's the yeah. one. Legend of Hill House came out in 1973. Mm, yes. The mansion was the film. The mansion where the film was shot. No, I'm sorry. Battle for Planet of the Apes came out in 1973. <laughs> That's the one that should have been nominated. Everybody else, go away. The mansion, the mansion where the film was shot, Taxinge Nasby, had not been inhabited for years, and the repainting of the walls with glossy red paint and the half-run-down condition of the place meant that it had to be extensively renovated by the new caretakers. 
Huh. Okay. In- Ingmar Bergman explained the use of the color red in his film Cries and Whispers is an exploration of the soul. And ever since childhood, I imagine the soul to be a damp membrane in varying shades of red. Wow. So anybody that's ever read into this movie, they'll be like, the red is passion. The red is lust. The red is violence. No, the red is Bergman just being crazy. The red is membrane. The red is your membrane. Yep. Um... Well, okay then. So there you go. See, that's why auteur theory is very important because the author tells you what the movie actually is uh, as opposed to, you know, going off whatever. It's only after they die and if they've never said anything about what it is can you say, like, oh, it's about this. They don't, they don't <laughs> know what they're talking about. That's like, you know, Tolkien was like, the Lord of the Rings is not about World War Two, And everyone's like, but it is. He's like, it's not. And then he died and everyone was like, it's about World War Two. everyone. No. Listen, he's dead. He can't tell us otherwise. Um, and then he came get, back to life. Get me a Ouija board. A, a Ouija board? A Ouija board. Do you know what a Luigi... Do you ever watch that video I sent you? Um, sure. The, when There's like a guy online that like people are just asking in forums like anything about uh, um, Ouija boards, but nobody knows how to spell it. Mm. So he just reads out their questions like does anyone know about a luigi board a luigi board a gawidja wigga board does anyone ever worked with a gawigga wigga board it's hilarious it's so good i'll send it to you again so you can watch it okay um okay last movie the sting directed by george roy hill written by david s warren starring paul newman robert redford and robert shaw Nominated for Best Actor for Redford Cinematography and Sound is Movie 1, Best Picture, Director, Adapted Screenplay, Production Design, Costume Design, Editing, Original, and Adapted Score. This movie revolves around two grifters, played by Redford and um, Redford and Newman, uh, as they pull off the ultimate con against Quint, a.k.a. Robert Shaw. Irish Quint, I should say. Irish Quint, yep. <laughs> Irish Quint. Irish Limpy Quint. Palmer, have you seen The Sting before? No, I have not. What did you think of The Sting? Loved it. Um, it captures the era perfectly. It captures the feel almost at times of a of a silent movie with the ragtime and piano <laughs> score. That's true. It's just also Robert Redford running from buildings as fast yep. as possible. Um, Watch Robert very, Redford tra- very run Charlie from buildings. Chaplin of him, like, oh my god, there he goes again, yep. just like running down the street as fast as humanly possible. Um, you know, I, I everything about this movie works. The costumes, the production. This is this to me is like for nineteen seventies. This looks like a classic Hollywood production. Yes, and it's it's all it's all on sets, you know. It's mm-hmm. all backlot um, film scenes, which I absolutely love. I love I love backlot movies. Yeah, because they feel like a movie, right? It doesn't. It, they it's, they if that makes feel sense. like a movie, but it still feels like a real place without the like. It's just visual to me. It's just visually better because you don't mm-hmm. have to deal with any like. Any problems with the space? So, like, Night and Day, the movie Night and Day with Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. Sure. You know, there's a really nice um, uh, action sequence or a chase sequence on the street that is filmed in, like, several different locations. One of them being 
in the city where we grew up in New Bedford. And another one in the town in which I used to live. So uh, how you Yeah, the, when the plane crashes, that yeah. it's in a field in mm-hmm. Bridgewater. Yeah. But what I'm talking about is like, so that, that chase sequence is made up of 18 different places pieced together to look like one. Mm-hmm. And when you know movies are doing that, it just kind of takes you out. Yep. Whereas these are all built with that in mind. Like we want, we want it to look like this and this and this. And boom, we built it. Go. Yeah, that that's true. Um, m- movies on back movies on backlots can also seem small in comparison, right? Because they because they're only using what they have, like the space they have available to them. So in mm-hmm. some ways, they feel very insulated um, it, without being sweeping. But that's why I meant like it feels like a movie as opposed to. Um, something that's real, like there's something nostalgic. Yeah, in I mean, to be fair, I didn't, real, I, didn't, I didn't realize that it was fully a backlot until I started looking up the trivia for this. So, like, the it's like I thought it was just because of some of the designs of the buildings, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I was like, oh, all right, it was an actual backlot. So yeah. it can still look realistic. Yeah, I think I think that it's um the amount of uh detail placed into placed into the sting is what elevates the material. Yeah. Cuz as far as the as far as the story goes, it I is was like pretty straightforward. It is. Pay attention yep. to that all the ocean movies ever <laughs> after the after the original Frank Sinatra one. Yeah, con and heist movies are not um are not movies that generally interest me so the stick i had a harder time getting into the sting because mm-hmm. of that i was able to appreciate everything around it like i loved the the like the ed- like the editing sweeps like mm-hmm. the, almost like the norman rockwell-esque yep. paintings that would be pages that they'd flip over and then like the swipes and irises and i things will say like that's that. the only thing i didn't like I liked it is because like the it, title cards. I liked it because it's old timey, and it's like because it's yeah, 1930, it and we you know, it, it just the the chapter cards seemed a little clunky to me. Sure, um, yeah, it, it, they didn't bother me. Actually, it helped yeah, me. I, like, I it, get the point of them. It, yeah, because it helps frame like how you should be thinking about those scenes, which yeah. I like. Um, which was which was pretty fun. It's almost like watching a magic trick, right? Like when you watch the Prestige, where he's like, "Okay, this is the setup, and this is the gimmick, and this is the like all the different like this is the turn, and like, right. all the different like but, actual uh, turns that he." It was kind of like that. It was like telling you like this is how you pull off a con. But unlike the Prestige, and unlike Ocean's Eleven through one hundred and seventy six, this movie was like, "We're not gonna try and outsmart you. We're just gonna entertain you." And it makes it more entertaining when the movie plays level with you than to be like, ha, we hid this information just to be able to do this surprise thing at the end. That works in some movies. I never liked them in the ocean movies. Um, right. But like something make, like The Prestige, I think it works in. Well, so, The Prestige is designed for you to – because there's a difference between a fair play mystery and a clueless mystery. Right. right? This is a – it's not really a mystery because you're watching them set it up, but, like, mm-hmm. this is a... Yeah, there's only, like, one small mystery that you kind of see. That's right, but uh, uh, the Prestige is a clueless mystery. Like, you're... Right. Um, it gives you some of the clues, but there are some that you are just... There are some answer Or Ocean's Eleven, that, like, is a better example. Like, you're just not privy to that information until right. until the time comes. We've held mm-hmm. that back from you. Um, but, yeah, I enjoyed this. I enjoyed all of it 
except for the fact that it was a con movie, just because that's not where my interest lies. But I don't think any of it was done poorly. It right. was all great. Just as a personal preference, this is mm-hmm. not the genre of film that I care for. Yeah, I don't typically like heist movies or con movies to an extent. This is definitely uh, – I absolutely – like I would watch this movie again in a second. This movie is just done so well and so enjoyable that I can overlook – like I've always said like the hardest thing when it's stuff like this where I'm supposed to be rooting for the guys breaking the law mm-hmm. is you have to get me to actually want to root for them. And this movie does it because they're not really ripping off – and I think it's because they're breaking the law but they're not ripping off – decent people that is correct right you know i'm you know they're ripping off they're ripping off someone who is essentially a racketeer Mm -hmm. and is and is very illicit so you know i'm fine with this yeah how did you did you like um did you like the trio the redford shaw yeah they were they were all really good um and i had forget like i knew shaw was in the movie and i had all i'd actually kind of forgotten that he was playing um, the Irish guy, uh, mm-hmm. and it was like about a third of the way or a quarter of the way in the movie. I was like, "Oh, that's Shaw," but initially, I didn't realize it was him, which I thought was really good. But I think Shaw does really well here, and I like seeing. Um, so I like seeing uh, Shaw going from playing this then to playing Quint. It's a similar character in the way of it's Shaw. Like, he doesn't really change his affectations, but it's different enough for me to see a yes, range. That's, yeah, that's a good point. I think there was a reason that Shaw wasn't nominated for this. I've seen him better in other things. He was better in the uh, Man for All Seasons, and he's better in Jaws and, and um, things like that. But I, um, but I enjoyed him. I thought Redford was particularly good. I can understand why he was... I can certainly understand why he was um, nominated because he um, he was he was truly truly excellent. Um, but how about you give me some fun facts for these movies? Fun facts: George Roy Hill made choices that would utilize certain stylistic techniques of the 1930s. For instance, he used he used the old-fashioned Universal logo, immediately invoking a nostalgic tone. He also employed such devices as editing swipes to transition between scenes and Irish shots, all stylistic choices that would help place the movie in the 1930s time frame. Huh. Well, there you go. As he researched old Hollywood gangster films of the 1930s for inspiration, George Roy Hill noticed that most of them didn't use a lot of extras in the scenes. For instance, Hill said in a quote to Andrew Horton's 1984 book, The Films of George Roy Hill, no extras would be used in street scenes in those films. Jim, James Cagney would be shot down and die in an empty street, so I deliberately avoided using extras. Huh. Interesting. That's something they're going to have to start doing because of uh, yeah. COVID, COVID-19. They're going to have to learn. They're going to have to do that lesson all over again. No, just digitally. Oh, yeah. According to Paul Newman, one afternoon of friendly drinks together triggered a series of competitive practical jokes between him and George Roy Hill. Hill invited Newman to his office for a drink one afternoon. Just before, however, Hill told Newman that he had no beer or vodka and asked him to pick some up. Newman agreed. Later, Newman sent Hill a bill for $8. 
Hill responded to the bill by sending Newman a three-page letter about the nature of friendship and how Newman had abused it. Newman responded to, to that by cutting Hill's desk in half with a chainsaw, leaving a note that said, This isn't about friendship. It's about $8. I may detonate the entire bungalow next time so I wouldn't mess around. Later, Newman received a bill from Universal to the amount of 800 to pay for damage to the desk. Newman never paid. Wow, what yeah, a love jerk! It. No, that was that was all in good fun. I know. I'm just I'm just teasing. I'm just yep. just teasing. And I'm going to do that to you one of these days. Oh no, my trailer! <laughs> oh, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't have a trailer. Oh well. All right, Palmer, that was great. Um, you can find us at Academy Rewind um, on Twitter and Timothy PG13 uh, Gmail at Academy Rewind, which we don't check. You can rate and review us on iTunes and find us all of the places podcasts can be found. Patreon.com slash Audio to um, support all Thoughtbubble Audio shows. And, of course, ThoughtbubbleAudio.com to check out all other Thoughtbubble Audio shows. Palmer, let's do the 1974 Rewindies. How's okay. Okay. Rapid fire. Go. Rapid fire. I'll go first, then you go. Supporting actor, Jason Miller for The Exorcist. Uh, Max von Sydow for The Exorcist. Cool. Supporting actress, uh, Candy Clark for American Graffiti. Uh, anyone but Candy Clark for American Graffiti. No. Um, this was tough because I couldn't, like, there I'm gonna really give wasn't it to, many I'm going to give actresses. it to Mackenzie for The Exorcist. See, oh, I didn't know we were allowed to do that because I did have Linda Blair as, like, the stand-in. But she yeah. wasn't. But like, I guess she wasn't. I mean, the movie. she is part of the movie, and all You're right. all our rule is it's got to be the movie. You're right. All right, I actually changed my answer to uh, okay. to Mackenzie for The Exorcist because that was my that was my choice. Yeah. Uh, um, production design, The Sting. Yes. Costume design, costume design, The Sting. Yep, The Sting. Makeup, hairstyling, The Exorcist. Exorcist. Yep. Uh, music, American Graffiti. American know, Graffiti. Because you know it doesn't have to be. It doesn't, yep. Yep. Actually. The, it's, we call that the Palmer loophole. That's right. Actually, in this one, it's adapted in original score. That's like, That was one of the categories. So I'm counting ah, nice. even in the 1973 year. It's okay. Um, 1974 year. Uh, visual effects, The Exorcist. Exorcist. Uh, cinematography, American Graffiti. Mm, the Sting. The Sting. Uh, editing, American Graffiti. American Graffiti. Sound, The Exorcist. Uh, American Graffiti. Exorcist I found to be too wobbly. Mm, I was close with American Graffiti. I was almost there uh, with that one. Uh, Best Actor, Robert Redford. Um, George Siegel. George Siegel. Yeah, good choice. He was great. Uh, Best Actress, Glenda Jackson. Glenda Jackson. Uh, Best Writing. I'm going to give to um, The Exorcist. The Sting. Yeah. And uh, Best Picture, The Exorcist. The Sting. The Sting, yeah. I think The Sting might be a better picture, like, overall. It, like, Yeah, it's slightly better. You know what it is? It's slightly better overall than, in my mind, A Touch of Class, because The Sting, it was... Two hours, give or take, just mm-hmm. shade over two hours, but it filled the time frame and it didn't linger like I felt a touch of class did at the end. Yep. So like that last half hour of a touch of class or what felt like a half hour, it could have been 15, 
20 minutes for all I know. Yeah. Um, it just seemed to drag. It was like, all right, this this movie's clearly done. We kind of know where it's going to end up at this point. Mm-hmm. Let's just end it there. Yeah. I think I'm just – I think over this – I'm giving it to The Exorcist over The Sting just for its influence, even though I think maybe The Sting is a slightly better film. Mm-hmm. I think The Exorcist is like legacy – like deserves recognition in its own way, and yeah. then and then I mean the nomination is is, is what gives it its legacy. That's true. Um, that's true. But then for me, pers- just personal enjoyment, like yeah, which yeah. is fine. So yeah, but these were yeah. the four out of five. Real, I solid lineup. <laughs> yeah, I mean three out of five Close were yeah. were pretty good. Like even though I don't love The Exorcist, I still think it's a decent movie. Yeah. Um, and then I would say four out of five were at least somewhat enjoyable. Like I loved listening to Wolfman Jack, and I love listening to the to the soundtrack of American Graffiti, even though I don't think the story's there. Um, and then there's just cries and whispers. Yeah, that and there's it's certainly which is essentially what happened throughout the entire movie while I was watching it. Yeah, I was, I was crying. I was going to say if I ever have to, to watch that movie again, there will be yeah. a lot of cries, cries and, some, yeah. and some deadly whispering. I can yeah. tell you. Uh, very good. All right. Well, up next, Palmer, is the 1964 Academy Awards. I'm looking forward to these because they're exceedingly long, and there's one that I've actually Yay. been waiting to watch, too. I've been waiting to watch for a long time. Uh, we have Tom Jones. <gasps> Lil- <gasps> Gasp. Lilies of the Field. <gasps> America, America. <gasps> How the West Was Won, <gasps> which is actually one of the ones that I've been waiting to watch for quite some time. And Cleopatra. <gasps> Very good. Oh, God, that hurt. Yeah. That <laughs> it hurt. sounded like it hurt. You can't do five movies anymore. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, so, and we're, and we're up to Cleopatra. So, um, yep. So that movie's 47 so we'll hours long. So we'll see in about six so. months when we can watch these movies. Oh my God. They're all, I think all of them except for one are like zeroing in on three, sometimes four hours. So we're going to. Yeah, so um, this but is But how why... long would they be if we took out the uh, overture and the intermission is the question. Uh, two hours and 11 minutes each. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so, uh, so we'll be back with 1964 in a, approximately a fortnight plus one week. Uh, and uh, and that's that, which is great because Palmer, I think they're playing us off. No, I have so many people to thank. Oh, too bad. Bye. Bye. Bye.